Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me, as always, is Vincent M. Wales. Hi, everyone. I am happy to introduce to you today our guest for this week, Mr. Steve Fields. Steve is the executive director of the Progress Foundation, which is a nonprofit mental health foundation in San Francisco. And this is as a follow-up to last week's show on NIMBYism. Uh, Steve has some detailed experience with this. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. First of all, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, I guess myself and Progress Foundation are kind of aligned because I started work there as a 22-year-old 48 years ago, and I'm still here. So Progress Foundation was a part of the enthusiastic community-based response to what was supposedly a deinstitutionalization policy. And I started working in a halfway house as a non-mental health person at all. I was a community activist and political person looking to do something in the community. So I linked up with this brand new halfway house, as we called them back in the old days, and started working there and got so interested in what I felt was wrong as an arrogant young person with the mental health system that I kept staying and trying to do different programs and trying to do things that I thought was addressing what I saw as the major problem, which is we institutionalize way too many people in this country because of their diagnosis of a mental illness and that we should be looking at other ways of working. If we're truly going to do something different in community mental health than what we did in institutional mental health, we needed to have a different practice and a different approach to treatment, a different approach to the people who come to us for services. And I worked in San Francisco where I got a chance to try an enormous number of new things. We opened what was really the first crisis residential treatment program in the country back in 1978 to try and stop the admission to the hospital at the emergency room door rather than just serve people down the line after the system has already, in many ways, turned them into patients instead of people who have a shot at recovery. So I didn't tend to be a mental health person. I got in it. I got politicized. I was working in a community where if I could bring ideas forward and work the politics right, I'd really have a shot maybe at using Progress Foundation as a nonprofit service provider to do something different. So that's really what we've done. We developed all kinds of different community analogs, residential treatment, 24 hours, Medicaid funded, fully staffed, but with a different kind of staff, a different kind of approach to what's called treatment with an emphasis on recovery before it was called recovery. And Excellent. it's been exciting work, and that's why I'm still doing it. That is excellent. As you know, we heard from Juliet Doris Williams last week, and she's the executive director of the Peer Center, which is a drop-in center for people who are trying to, you know, recover from mental illness or addiction or trauma issues. And she's had some issues with the neighborhood. We've had some issues with the neighborhood. And one of the reasons that we ask you to be on the show is you've sort of been fighting this for, you know, much of your career. Is that true? That's certainly true. So yeah. you've become somewhat yeah. of an expert on this. Yeah, by necessity, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 
In last week's show, we explained exactly what NIMBY is, and for those of you who have not listened to that show yet, shame on you. But here's basically what it is. NIMBY stands for Not In My Backyard, and it's basically an attitude where a community or even just an individual does not want a particular thing in their neighborhood. Could be a mental health care center, for example, could be a nuclear power plant, could be a strip club. It's this situation where they don't want that in their neighborhood, but they'll say, hey, move it on down a couple of miles. That'll be fine. So, Steve, give us your give us your views on NIMBYism, please. I think it's a, an acronym that registers with a lot of people about the status of a condition where people want to have services for people, but they just don't want it near them. But I have kind of rejected NIMBY and NIMBYism because sometimes it polarizes people immediately. Because the thing I've learned the most in my work was that if you approach what you're facing from a more generic and almost political world, which is you're not making judgments, you're just saying, I'm going to be dealing with community opposition, then you don't make the mistake of missing what the real issues might be for some people that help you win over support, uh, peel off opposition, and probably even more importantly, I've learned over the years, hold on to the political support you need to be able to get a program open, whether it's through a conditional use process or something else, because ultimately planning commissions and boards of supervisors can make all the difference in whether you're you continue to have your program open or whether or not you never get your doors open. So I don't say NIMBYism much anymore because it's become a bit of a, a, a too simplistic a way of describing the phenomenon of people who don't want different people in their neighborhood for all kinds of reasons. I see. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Now, I know that you listened to last week's show with Juliet and, and know about the, the problems that she experienced with the Peer Center. What are some of your observations about that incident? Yeah, it was really hard to listen to. I mean, she's gone through a lot, and, and the ending was really kind of inspirational in terms of her sense of you know, not giving up and, and looking for a way to, to uh, stay, keep the center going without having to have that kind of behavior close it. Um, I, you know, again, I, you know, I know Columbus, Ohio is not San Francisco, California, although we've opened programs in Napa, which was there when we opened them was a state hospital community that didn't want any community program. So I'm, I'm used to the very sometimes depressingly angry and ugly attitudes that people will bring into their opposition to a program being opened. And I have not had a program that that was struggling to run and serve individuals in the community while the community opposition or the people in that neighborhood were acting the way those individuals in an organized kind of way was the impression I certainly had to try and harass this service and the people who use it into getting out of their neighborhood. What I heard happening to the center was almost a legal definition of harassment. Almost. And, and I kept thinking as I was listening to it without the advantage of, you know, of being in that moment and in that political environment. So this needed a legal response. It needed a political response. It needed because what what's going on here isn't acceptable. 
under ADA, under anything else, and then it would it, that that would have been what I would be consulting with to say, no, you're going to stay here and you're going to fight this. But I don't know the, you know, the indigenous conditions that she was struggling with. You know, to shine a little light on this, it, it's not that they didn't want to fight. It's that, of course, fighting is expensive. Legal battles uh-huh. are expensive. And as you know, as an executive director, your, your time is very, very valuable. And I I know that she wanted to fight. I, I believe she said she wanted to be a social justice warrior and just, you know, attack right. on all fronts. But the reality is, is the neighborhood had, you know, time, energy, effort, and money that unfortunately mm-hmm. a nonprofit doesn't have, which kind of leads me into my next question. It seems like a nonprofit would be easy to bully because of their lack of funds and resources but clearly nonprofits thrive and survive. What suggestions do you have in that situation? The experience I've had over what, uh, we really sort of had our first community opposition event in 1973 when we were opening the program. We'd already had a programs open for a couple of years, but community mental health was so new, they didn't even have use permits that would describe what we were trying to do. And, and so suddenly, of course, when, when the politics of a community discover things, they start putting their own framework on it. So my first community opposition meeting was in 1973, and the most recent one I had was in 2008. I've opened 15 programs in San Francisco, another three in Napa, and another three in, in Santa Rosa, Sonoma County, every single one of them from 1973 to 2008, received community opposition. Strong, angry, righteous. (laughs) So, you know, what I learned over time trying to figure out what this phenomenon was like was, first of all, and this is true, I think, for a lot of, and I don't know how it applies particularly, say, to Columbus, Ohio, but politics rage everywhere. So, my programs provide services that are funded by local government. Counties in California are the mental health provider. And every program that I've opened and been leading toward opening in a, in a neighborhood has funding from the county mental health system, which is true of enormous number of community-based programs. So that's my customer to begin with. It's not the client. It's the county that needs this program or has a reason for having it. One of the things that I learned over time was I start at the decision point. I start at who has the power politically uh, through a use permit process, a planning commission, or a board of supervisors to prevent the program from opening. And I go talk with them first about my plan to open it so I can kind of inoculate them to what they're going to see when we finally propose a particular address for a particular site. I learned that that when they're surprised in a chamber or with a bunch of phone calls from a neighborhood and they don't know about the program and they haven't met me and they haven't listened to why it's being opened and what its purpose is and how it fits into the, you know, the larger policy goals of their community, their, their government, whether it's a city or whether it's a county or a region then they panic. And when you're, when you're trying to learn about community-based services for people with, with a diagnosis of mental illness in that kind of highly charged environment, that's the worst place to try and get a point across 
to decision or policy makers. So I start there. I get their advice on what part of the community would be the best, and then I make my case for why we're not going to put all of our programs down in one poor neighborhood. And we get a chance to dialogue before I brought them an actual proposed site. I like to joke about the fact that after opening these 15 programs in San Francisco, I've never picked the right street. <laughs> There's always a street I could have picked in every meeting I'm in. We love what you do at Progress Foundation. We know these poor people need the support and help, but you just picked the wrong block, and it's always the case. So I understand that I'm never going to eliminate opposition, but I have to I have to approach their opposition in a way where I narrow it down to the kinds of people that were harassing the center in Columbus, Ohio. Because when you have your first meeting, of a neighborhood, and that's when the most angry, frightened people show up. There's a lot of those folks that just want to hear answers. And if I'm already thinking that they're bad people because they're opposed, I'm, I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to polarize the discussion. So what I've said to a lot of people about community opposition, your goal isn't to win people's support. It's to peel away the opposition. Take it on face value that if they say they're worried about the traffic you're going to create, because people always dissemble and pick an issue because they don't want to say until they have to, we don't want these kind of people around. So you address traffic, you address parking, you address garbage, you address noise, and you answer the question straight up until pretty soon people will who are just worried or concerned will go away and then you're down to half the people. And pretty soon you start narrowing it down. And almost every time I've gotten to a place where the people in front of the planning commission or the board of supervisors will stand up and say, we just don't want these people in our neighborhood. We don't think they belong here. And then I've won because the board of soups has already been preconditioned for what's illegal to deny any kind of facility or program in the community simply because of the disability of the people that might use it because ADA is protective. There's There are a number of fair housing laws that you can draw. There's a whole whole legal framework that protects and and puts a county or a jurisdiction at in in liability danger if they turn something down for reasons of discrimination. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face -face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. The next question that I have is, in, in all of your years, are, are people just really this, I mean, I hate to ask it this way, but mm. are people just really this mean? I mean, what you described was somebody just stood up and said, I don't want these people in my neighborhood. I mean, I, I'd like to think that that doesn't exist, but, but I, I know that it does. But is it really coming from a place of just, just anger and, and, or is it, I mean, give us some hope here. I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't, well, I don't believe communities are this mean. I think it's yeah, fear, Gabe, don't you? 
I, I mean, I do Even think it's been... fear, but what makes people this fearful yeah. of sick people? Well, you know, one of my working theories, which I'll throw out in the show, which is, you know, is that and, and, and this is what generates this issue that's called nimbyism and that as a general phenomenon, you see it is that some of the people who produce the most stigma on on serving individuals with a mental illness diagnosis in the community are the providers themselves. So it's not meanness. It's also a, a kind of ambivalent attitude that pervades a lot of the mental health service systems about the very people that we're trying to serve. And so when you have uh, imminent psychiatrists and imminent mental providers playing on on the fact that we've uh, we've closed too many hospital beds because there are too many dangerous people out in the community and they're seen as the experts and they validate that fear, then fear is definitely there. There's probably the most distorted idea about what individuals are like is visited upon people who have a mental illness diagnosis. It gets all the way from the National Rifle Association playing the mentally ill card to avoid their responsibility for their gun policy and practices. So people are constantly equating as we know, and it's going on in popular media and in the news, mental illness with violence all of the time. So you start with a basic fear. I had a meeting in Santa Rosa on a new crisis residential program just four years ago. And the neighbors in that community, which was a fairly upscale community in Santa Rosa, came to the neighborhood meeting. And the first question I was asked is, can you guarantee to me that if my grandchild who's visiting me walks by this house, that he won't be kidnapped or murdered by one of your clients. This is 2012 in California, in Santa Rosa, because they kind of, the, the 12 people in the room were so fearful. They just didn't want to take the risk. And so I don't think it's ugliness, although there are people like that. I agree with the, the idea that it's fear because it's the unknown for them by Letting this program be there or by acceding to its location, it's all risk from their point of view. And the job of service providers like me and others is to try and narrow the number of people that will not let go of that fear. Because I don't think I've ever eliminated it exactly. Here's the story in California, and I know Vincent may have heard me say this in a couple of meetings I've been in. It, you know, back in 1973, it was even more astoundingly negative environment just to try and get a program in a community. These were people who just expected all of the mentally ill to be in state hospitals, and you never had to deal with them. But over time, California has probably opened several hundred residential treatment programs all over the state. Almost every one of them in various counties received opposition from the neighborhood they wanted to locate in. Every one of them had to go through a process where they eventually were able to get the permission to open the program. And I don't know of a single residential treatment program that has been closed in any, and I, I stay in touch with the statewide organization of nonprofits that provide these services, has ever been closed after it was opened. And I think one of the great untold stories about what's seen as nimbyism and as community opposition 
is that we have a case now of 40 years of community mental health in California where we've been, and, and Ohio is famous for having a vigorous community mental health system of care. A couple of governors who were in the leadership of developing that. But we don't tell that story. It's like every time someone opens a new service or brings a new program to a neighborhood, it's like we're starting all over again. That neighborhood starts supposing there's no well-known public policy understanding about how many of these programs have actually worked and the fears people had about their property values plummeting and people being hurt and injured in the neighborhood had never come true. And we don't codify that experience enough to bring it into the public arena before we're in a big fight with a neighborhood in front of a bunch of politicians who are afraid to take a hard vote. Well, unfortunately, Steve, I think that people who are that fearful aren't going to be swayed by facts. Yeah, the, eventually they may. Again, I, I don't want to presume to know the political environment in Columbus, Ohio, that Juliet's trying to operate within. I you know, have great respect for what they're fighting with. And I know San Francisco is not like a lot of other places, but I know Napa was. It was really an angry community. It's still a matter of persistently addressing legitimate concerns, keeping in mind the fact that the political system, the public policy people, whether they're planning commissioners or members of the board or mayors of cities, eventually are caught between the potential for a lawsuit around ADA issues or federal fair housing laws, which are on the books and are very explicit about people with disabilities being protected in these laws, that they're caught between not being able to turn something down or drive it out of a neighborhood, not because of the behavior that's going on, but because of who it is that's using that service. They're caught between that knowledge, which puts a jurisdiction and strong legal liability, and the, the small number of people who stay opposed. Now, you know, I know when Juliet was talking about having the open house and the thing, I, I thought, you know, I've done things like that. I've had neighbors go visit other programs. And what I've, what I've done is, is generally engaged people before and seen who stops coming as opposed to who stays opposed. I don't see it as a negative story. I mean, I've, I have my neighbors now of my 15 programs in San Francisco don't know we're there even. To me, that's a great outcome. <laughs> I don't need them being vigilant and wondering. We've gone through a process with each program of the people that lost the battle start drifting away. The people in very rare instances that have continued to be uh, aggressive and harassing, we use the political structure and the legal structure to keep them away. And that's happened maybe in less than a half a dozen times. Um, and, and we end up being integrated into a neighborhood, and then we're there. And then people are good neighbors. You know, there's a lot of people opposed to programs who, if you can break through what their reason is for opposition, and there are some legitimate ones, and answer their questions directly, give credit to the fact that they're worried and wondering about what might happen here, and talk to them and not try to judge the fact that they don't know that much about mental illness, they don't know that much about the kinds of individuals that are coming to services. Most of them give up and go away. 
they're not going to become your best friend, but they're going to say, okay, you know, it looks like this agency knows what it's doing. They have a record. They've given us the phone number to call whenever there's a problem. And that's the very same process the political people need to hear in order to be comfortable voting to support a program where some of their own neighbors are in the audience yelling, this place shouldn't be here. I've told a lot of people, including my wife, the time I feel the worst in the work that I've done has been after some of these community meetings. I just want to quit and say, what am I even doing this for? Um, I imagine and so. Then I yeah, and then I have to remember I can win this. I just need to win it. I need to show enough support politically and to back them down and win this. And I've never had to go to another site like Juliet had to do, but I could imagine that having to be in the equation of winning. But what I would like, you know, what I would like to be able to talk to her about it, how do you start building political support around what you're doing so that you're not alone in this fight, that there's a bigger audience that's looking at this behavior and helping you persevere? Because to me, it's always been about politics. Mm -hmm. I, I do agree with you that, you know, you know, I, I am personally invested in, in, in the peer centers issue. You know, I, 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 I right. worked there during the week. I, I was, I've been there for three years. Juliet is probably, as far as mental health advocates go, she, she's probably the one that I look up to the most. And, you know, part of me just has a little trouble getting over the idea that there was anything that we could do about it. It must've been, you know, pitchforks and, and, you know, lighted torches and anger. It just, my intellectual side is like, you know, yes, this is a political process that we need, need to manage. But my emotional side is, no, they hated us and drove us out. Can you speak a little bit on, you know, what do we do with those feelings? Because at this point, you know, we're, we've moved. We're, that story is over for the, for the peer center. And now we're processing just the idea that people didn't want us. We consider our work to be so righteous and it, mm -hmm. we just feel kind of deflated. Well, you know, I think the, the advantage that I've had uh, in doing this work is that, that that is one step removed from the legitimacy of the advocacy that Juliet and everybody at the center sports, which is there's no way that you, you the staff, the people who come there, the associates, the can't take it personally because they're talking about you. When you have a peer-run center where, if not everybody, the vast majority of people who are working and volunteering are there because they too have been in the situation that the associates that you're wanting to serve are in. I have not been confronted with taking personally what they're saying about the service, the people that i trying to fight to open a program to provide another way of serving. So I get to get angry without feeling like, wow, they're talking about me. And, yeah. and so, and I think in a way that's allowed me to just think strategically a lot of the time and not have to have that feeling of despair or feeling undervalued and everything. I can represent the anger about that toward the people that I've met and still know as friends who've come to us to receive services, but I don't feel it directly. 
And so I can't, I don't want to presume to say, well, you should be able to do what I did. Juliet should be able to put that aside because I could hear it in her voice. I mean, it was personal. So I guess maybe part of the deal is in the political world, there need, you guys, maybe the center could find somebody who's a buffer between that, who's going to represent the center in political arenas and in strategy and be one removed like I am from taking it personally because it, it can be devastating. Yeah. Um, we didn't know I, we needed it until we needed it. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're opening a peer-run crisis residential program in Santa Rosa. We just started the process of doing that. And, and actually, it's an interesting experiment because there's so many complications involved with getting the program open. When it's open, it'll be staffed by and run by people with lived experience across the board in this program. And that's something I've never done at Progress. We've hired, as, as you know, the term has been consumers ever. I didn't know you weren't supposed to. Some of my first programs and our first crisis residential program, 30% of the staff were people who had come through the system for mental health treatment. I just thought it made sense. Yeah. Um, it, it just was a better program that way. And so, you know, maybe, you know, one of the things that the center and this movement, the pure movement is in Santa Rosa, I'm the buffer. I'm letting them design the program free of also being caught up in this bizarre bullshit visited upon anybody who dares to try and do a program like this in the community because so I, I can buffer that and say, open the best program you can. We're just going to make sure that it's funded. We're going to make sure it continues and we won't interfere in it. So I think as peer services become more and more a part of community mental health systems, that's the issue they're going to have to confront until you know the political world changes or gets more enlightened. Awesome. Thank you for that answer. Yes, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the information. We all got into this because we wanted to help people. And strangely, we thought that the most difficult challenges would come providing the help. But mm -hmm. oftentimes, it's, it's, the, it's the extraneous stuff. It's the, the tangents that seem more difficult than, you know, helping people with mental illness and addiction. It was... It was a little bit shocking to us when it happened. Yep. You know, we've been around for over a decade and this really was all new to us. And uh, mm -hmm. I guess it just meant that we were lucky for the first decade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you're exactly, you're describing the shocking reality. And there's days I, I walk around wearing my cynical hat, which is, you know, I have to tell my staff sometime when they're coming in to meet with me and they're saying, you know, it's not about being right. It's not about righteousness. It, it, that's what happens every day when you're, when you're with the people who are there and hurting and looking for help and services. That's the righteousness. But in the world outside, you know, it's kind of like an organ that is being uh, transplanted and rejected by the system. It hasn't embraced the values that most of us talk about. But, and we walk that line because Community mental health is only 45 years old for all intents and purposes. And I have to remember that's kind of new given, you mm -hmm. know, how much the culture is built around fear and, and, and I got mine and, and a sharp division. So, yeah, I, I sometimes just say, you know, just to be cynical saying, look, it's about money, you know, whatever it's about on some level, it's fear and money and the righteousness doesn't make it work. 
it makes the services work, but not the politics. They don't care. And that's, that's just fine with me because then I, I can meet them on their ground by giving them what they do care about to protect the services from having to suddenly get cynical or make compromises and be different. I think that's why I've loved this work as long as I have, because I've just always liked being in that kind of an arena. But if the programs that Progress is able to provide didn't look the way they do, if I wasn't as proud of them as I am, I'd have burned out a long time ago. I hear that. Steve, thanks again for being on the show with us. The time just flies, but uh, we do have to to wrap things up now. (laughs) I I understand. It's, It's been fun. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. PsychCentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. PsychCentral is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at GabeHoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counselor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at vincentmwales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. 1 in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.